Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. Hi, I'm Amber Kenyon. I'm with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit association based out of Westlock, Alberta. We're going to be running these networking nights with Greener Pastures Ranching every second Wednesday throughout the winter. The link is going to stay the same, so there's no need to re-register. Once you've registered once on our website, you are good to go for the season. I'm really excited to have Temple Grandin with us tonight. She has done so much for our industry and has changed the way that I personally look at animal handling. We also have another sponsor for tonight's session. Battle River Research Group, uh, or Berg, is represented tonight by Karen Lindquist. And so she's going to introduce their group and tell you a little bit about herself and what they do. Yeah, my name's Karen. I'm the Extension uh, Environmental Agronomist with Battle River Research Group. We're out of uh, Forsberg, Alberta, which is central Alberta, around Stettler and south of Camrose. And we cover south of Stettler and, and we do crop plots. So we plots with everything from forages and uh, cereals. We've done a couple corn silage plots this, this year, silage, silages and uh, perennials to look at the nutritional values. We also do uh, webinars um, with crops and with marketing, cattle marketing and crop marketing and economics and other things like nu- nutrition, Forages, and I, I even did a plant ID webinar with Gateway Research. You can find it on their, web, their website. It's called uh, What's That Plant? <laughs> it was a fun one to do. We did some agri-profits this December. We'll be doing some more come, come January. We've got a few things planned for, for to, to do. So, um, yeah, so we just do a bunch of things, field days in the summertime. We're pretty busy summertime, so we're kind of doing indoor events or webinars during the winter time and then we're out and about in the summer so that's that's the nutshell with with Berg here so thanks Karen um so next up I'm gonna have Steve talk a little bit about greener pastures ranching and the work that we do with greener pastures um Steve is my husband and he's a co-host every second week throughout the winter so thanks Amber yeah, I'm very excited about tonight. I've been a long-term follower of Temple Grandin for many, many years. And we wanted to start up these networkings last winter because we were lacking networking, right? With COVID and all the conferences being canceled, the networking is where I learned most of my, edu- you know, that's I got my most of my education over the last 20 years. So um, I think that's so important to be able to have these networking nights and I'm really enjoying them. First time I met Temple Grandin, I was trying to figure it out here probably about 17 years ago. The reason I'm going with 17 is because my son is now 20 and uh, went down to a livestock animal handling seminar in Southern Alberta. I can't even remember the town, but I got to listen to Temple and she just blew me away. And then I cornered her after and uh, started talking about my son. So um, this is a very uh, big night for me because, how do I say it? Uh, When we watched the Temple Grandin movie, if anybody hasn't watched it, I highly recommend it. It was a pretty emotional movie for me because I I really, really hit home with that. So uh, I'm really excited to have Temple Grandin here and I hope I can make it through this. Might be one of my uh, all-time favorites uh, on the Wednesday Night Networking. So Temple, I would... uh, like to introduce you a little bit if you could tell a little bit about yourself and maybe introduce the topic uh we, we always let the host pick the topic so thank you well, Temple. i was asked um we were going to be talking tonight about um, cattle handling um 
animal welfare issues, sustainability issues. I'm a professor of um, animal science at Colorado State University. I've been there lots and lots of years. I've done a lot of work on designing cattle handling facilities. I was very pleased to see a ranch that built one of my designs and that it was working well for them. That's just um, great. Always like to hear that. I also want to talk about um, auditing uh, cattle handling. You manage what you measure. One of the mistakes I made when I first started, when I was in my 20s, when I was young and foolish, I thought I could build a self-managing cattle handling facility. You can't do that. A good cattle handling facility is going to make cattle handling so much easier, but you have to have the management to go along with it. I, I just can't emphasize that enough. Then some further work later on, I worked on developing auditing programs. You know, where you measure handling. Well, in our beef quality assurance, uh, we have cattle handling measurements like uh, how many cattle vocalize when you catch them in the squeeze chute or fall down during handling. Well, I hope very, very few, because if that goes up, that's a sign that you've got handling problems. Now, I've been in this industry, I hate to tell you how many years I've been in this industry, but a long time. And I've had some people say, well, Temple Grandin just talks about the same old stuff. Well, I find that I need to. Just three days ago, I got a phone call from a nice young lady who um, got a degree in animal science, and she's working for an organization, and we had to talk about basic cattle handling principles, like don't put too many cattle in the crowd pen. I'm talking about the basics, and when you've got new people coming in, you still have to talk about these basics because it's new to them. You see, that's the thing new to them. And then I've got my books on the small farms. I've got Temple Grandin's Guide to Working with Farm Animals, aimed at small uh, smaller operations. And then my Humane Livestock Handling book has got my, um, my, my big um, systems that are all welded in place steel, where the guide to working with farm animals is mostly portable panels. We've got a lot of people now uh, running cattle on leased land, where they're going to have to use portable panels. Because if you attach it to the ground with concrete, uh, then the landlord owns it. And, and if you're leasing land, you usually do not want to do that. I'm, what I'm trying to want to do now is encourage um, young people to come in, get out there and be successful. That's uh, super important. And I'm getting more and more interested in um, we've got to start adopting you know, better grazing practices. I subscribe to The Grass Farmer. It's great publication. And it's been interesting over the years watching how people have adopted things like better rotational grazing. In the beginning, it was sort of considered kind of crazy. Now things that used to be considered crazy are now mainstream. And the thing is, the little guys innovate. That's true in every business. I don't care whether it's electronic chips or whether it's with the cattle grazing. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about the future. What's going to happen 25 years in the future, 50 years in the future? Well, I think we need to be getting the, um, the beef cattle and the land back together. I'm pleased to see that more and more people are grazing things like corn stalks, doing cover crops to improve soil health. We need to be showing people how um, cattle and other grazing animals can improve land. See, a lot of group activist groups sort of say, well, cattle just wrecks just everything. Well, they improve land and soil health if you use the, use grazing animals properly. And we got so much land all around the world where you can't grow crops on it. We're running the aquifers out in some parts of the world. And the only thing you can raise on that land is grazing animals. You can you grow grass on that land and have just enough water out of the wells to water it. 
And I think that's something we really have to think about. The grazing animal has a place in the landscape in a very sustainable system. I agree completely. Um, this year was really strange in Alberta and we had a whole bunch of canola regrowth. Canola is one of our major crops. And it was so amazing to see farmers that don't normally put cattle out on their, their lands to actually be grazing the canola uh, regrowth that was up there because there was no way they were going to harvest it before uh, frost hit. And I just, I thought it was fantastic that we were finally getting animals out on the landscape. We've got to be doing a lot more of these things. And then we won't have to use, I've just been learning about, you know, with methane, of course, CO2, we know about that, but nitrous oxide is another bad greenhouse gas. You do things like uh, put a legume in for uh, rotate with that. You can cut down on the fertilizer use. These are all things we, you know, we need to be doing. And I did a big trip where I drove out to Kearney, Nebraska about six weeks ago. And uh, I was pleased to see the amount of cattle out grazing the corn stubble. People are learning how to do it so that they don't compact the land. I was in Illinois and we talked about that. But we got to do things right because I heard about a mess that um, somebody got some cattle way too jammed up and crowded in a high density grazing situation and their uh, repro performance was not improved. We've got to make sure that don't make those kind of mistakes. Yeah, there there is a lot that can go wrong, right? Yeah, We've got to be stuff did go wrong. Yeah. And then people trash it. One thing I've learned about transferring a technology, and I'm gonna talk about center track restrainer system in a huge beef plant, and High Rivers got one, and so does the Brooks plant. That when you I don't care whether it's a pasture system or whether it's a piece of equipment in a large meatpacking plant, the principle of transferring a technology is the same. You have to make sure early adopters do not fail. Who you pick for an early adopter is important. And when I did center track restrainer, I had a plant manager and an assistant manager that were totally behind the project. Really important. Then when it got put into the next seven places, I went to startup because the second place that put it in made a modification in the design, which was an absolute mess. And I was glad I was there to fix it. And this is going to be the same thing with a lot of these new innovative things, you know, with cover crops. You've got to get people that want to make it work. The uh, conditions are very local, but you've got to get the enthusiastic early adopters because unfortunately I had another project. Again, this was me packing up uh, pig stunning equipment that failed because I got a plant chosen that I knew the manager was not behind it. And my corporate guy died and the project was canceled. This is this whole, I found I spent more time transferring a technology than I did inventing it in the first place. And I think and, you know, we're going to have to get some people really gung-ho to work with early adopters and making sure they don't fail. And we've got to do stuff that early adopters can do. I talked to a lovely lady in Nebraska. She raises chickens and she also raises corn and soy. And somebody came to her with a really complicated thing with like a hundred seeds in the cedar for her cover crop. I'm going, don't put that on a beginner. Let's start with something easy that they can do where they're not going to fail. I think that's a good point. I know even locally here, we have people that get into cattle and they're like, yeah, they're, they're really gung ho and excited about even bringing cattle on and excited about regenerative agriculture. But then it comes time to ship out. 
and they don't have facilities to ship out. They don't know what to do. And uh, Steve's Steve's all become very busy in our falls because he'll go and set up a portable handling system where he can ship, help ship them out because a lot of people coming in, just if they have a wreck, they're never going to want to handle cattle again. Well, that's right. And you see a rich, you see what's happened is crop farming and, and cattle have gotten so specialized well, the thing is, I think in the future, we're going to have to get them uh, back together again. And we've got to get we've got to make sure early adopters have a good experience. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of stick on cover crops because something was done wrong. Got to make sure that that does not happen. Yeah. And there's a there's a lot of, uh, I would say, new newcomers coming in. It, it is hard to make sure that they don't have those wrecks. Because you can't be there to hold their hand the whole time either, well, you but you've got to be able to give them that, you know, the warnings that what could go wrong is more important than, you know, this is the, this is such a successful thing. Well, I um, tell people to get very good local advice, talk to people that have done it, you know, work into it slowly, like don't get too many cattle, you know, let's just, let's learn to walk before we run kind of thing and, and help them to do it in a simple way. But there was a big thing that went on in one of our states. That was a gigantic mess, and that happened real recently. And that's not what helps to get things going, you know. But it sounds like you're doing some really great things because the other thing we've learned from the pandemic is big is not bad; it's very fragile. We had a horrible mess with pigs in the Upper Midwest when plants shut down due to COVID. Three hundred thousand head of pigs had to be destroyed out on the farm, often in not very nice ways gigantic mess. And now we have a lot of people wanting to get into smaller plants and sometimes they're having problems. We, the thing is in supply chain management, big is fragile. It's also very efficient and cost-effective, but when it breaks, it's a real mess. You have a distributed supply chain, it doesn't break as easily, but things are gonna be more expensive. So in, you can't compete head to head with the big guys so you're going to you know, sell to a market where it's interested in supporting family ranching. And uh, in a way that depends on government legislation as well, like here in Canada or at least in Alberta, up until recently, you couldn't butcher on farm, which meant you had to find a facility to have the have animals butchered in. Those are really hard to find chickens. We have to transport our chickens. What is it? Three or four hours, Steve, in order to to slaughter chickens. So realistically, that's not economical. It's not going to work. And then you have an animal that's stuck on a truck for three to four hours. Mm-hmm. We have we have the same problem with not enough good small slaughter plants, problems with getting inspection. You know, now some states are trying different things. You can't have no inspection. I've been in too many absolutely disgusting places where they process game. I mean, let's just throw up. And one's one of our states um, is having county health department check them. I don't know how well that's going to work out, but it, but it, you have to have something. They're, they're, I've just seen too much dirty stuff in my life. I can imagine. Uh, we do have a question that came in. I'm going to say Marshall because I don't know which one of you it is. It's Noah. It's Noah. <laughs> Noah, he's you're still out. Wear, he's still wearing his name tag from North Dakota or what? Yeah, sure am. Yep. <laughs> don't want you to forget who I am. Hello, Temple. Temple. Uh, Steve, Amber, nice to see you. Um, so my question has to do with loading cattle pots. I drive truck part-time 
And uh, just pretty much everywhere you go, there's good facilities and bad facilities. But even once the cattle are on the truck, it seems like sometimes the cattle just stop in a certain spot. And uh, it seems like everybody just goes to using a hot shot right away. And I was just kind of wondering if you had any suggestions of how to get around that or try to do something else other well, than that. The cattle will stop at something. And let's say it's a shadow or something, uh, a reflection on a wet floor. And if the person driving just backs off a little bit, sometimes that lead animal has got its head down looking at that puddle and you wait for that animal to put the head back up and then, then it'll go, you know, give it, give it a chance just to look a little bit at the distraction. The other thing is, is if in certain facilities, you may find that there's distractions that they'll stop at, like maybe a vehicle's parked alongside the fence then get people to move the vehicles. And on my website, grandon.com, I've got a lot of information on basic handling. Also in my, my two books, um, Working with Farm Animals and Humane Livestock Handling, things like a coat on the fence, a piece of string hanging down, the littlest things to make cattle stop. And if you watch where they stop and you bring them up quietly, that animal will look right at the thing he doesn't like, like maybe reflection off a truck bumper. I remember one time I was at a place and they had a great big van there. I got that moved. And, and the cattle moved a whole lot better. That's not always the case. The other thing is people have got to calm down, got to stop the screaming and all of that kind of stuff and getting the cattle completely crazy. Because once you get cattle really scared and crazy, it takes 20 minutes to calm back down. They get mm. scared instantly. And these are basics. There was a study done in the U.S. by Yoast about three years ago, about 39 Texas feed yards. And they looked at uh, the stockmanship of the of the people. And you still had a big percentage of people yelling and screaming and putting too many cattle in the crowd pen. Now, loading a pot, it, since they go right into the truck, um, you can put a lot more cattle in the crowd pen if they just keep on going into the truck. But working in the squeeze chute to have good handling, you've got to bring up smaller groups and it's going to require more walking. And people don't want to do the walking. And this is basic stuff. I mean, the, Fine, we still have to keep talking about it. The other thing I found to have good handling, management's got to insist on it and say, you know, we're just not going to put a hot shot onto everything. And I like to get people to not be carrying hot shots around. I wouldn't recommend banning them. Like sometimes you get an animal at the entrance of the squeeze chute. I don't want to see somebody breaking her tail. Uh, it absolutely won't go. But sometimes um, you might have to use it. But you want to try things like the walking back by the animal in the lead-up chute going into the squeeze, and you walk back by quickly in the opposite direction of desired movement, the animal will often go forward and cross the shoulder. And those diagrams are in all my books. They're also on grandon.com. And on papers, I've got links to, to papers in my research section and the behavior section that's got even more stuff on these things. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, Temple. Um, I, I can add to that, Noah, a little bit. A couple of the things that I've really noticed is the time of day, yeah. right? Like sometimes I'll start early in the morning loading trucks and then the next truck comes and you're loading. And just because that sun moves, it changes right. shadows. In yeah. fact, my student, Dennis Wilson, just did a paper where he looked at sharp shadows. It was at a small meatpacking plant. And when there were sharp shadows, the animals are more likely to stop. And he also um, went a big found that when a big noisy truck was there, the animals are more likely to, to stop. 
And one of the worst lighting situations you can have is let's say it's in the early morning and the loading ramp's facing straight east to where you don't want it facing, because then you have the situation where the cattle are staring right into the sun, same way that you'd be staring into the sun when you're driving and you just hate that. And the sun's just coming up over the top of the uh, truck and it's going to be just off for about 30 minutes. And about the only thing you can do is change the time of day you load them. And then yes. at night, you can use lights to attract cattle into buildings. Another place where you'll have problems is um, you've got an indoor cattle handling facility. It's real sunny outside and then it's dark and they don't want to go into the building. I call that the dark movie theater effect. And sometimes you can correct that by opening up some doors on the other side of the wall so they see daylight through the building. That will help you get them in. And yeah, you bet. Videos that show awesome. a lot of these practices on Brandon.com. I've got a whole video library. I've got my videos on there. Also, some videos that other people have made that I thought were really nice, you know, that illustrate a lot of these principles. Excellent. Thank you, Temple. Did we answer that good, Marshall? Yep, sounds good. Thank you. I mean, Noah, <laughs> looking at your name again. All right, you get another to question. Marshall. Um, next up, we have Phil. Are you ready, Phil? Yeah, I'm good. So uh, this year with COVID, uh, as you probably know, a lot of the uh, auctions were done online. And so you weren't able to actually go look at the animals or pre preview them before you, you bought them. Uh, so we had to do it online. And when we got these animals, genetically, they're fantastic. But we found out later they had almost no experience with people. And the first thing the, the transport driver told me was, you bought some wild cattle. Uh, we've been working with them for a year and uh, we, we finally got them to calm down and they're actually very easy to handle now. But my question is like, what do you, what should we be looking for like at the auctions for like bad behavior? And then my other question would be, if you get a bad behaved cow that you work with and are looking to improve, what's your cutoff for, I just can't, can't fix this animal. Now both genetics and previous experience affects how wild cattle are going to act. Now, where genetics has the biggest effect is if you suddenly put the cattle in a novel situation, the genetically flighty cattle have a bigger startle reaction, bigger fear reaction than genetically calmer cattle. But you can have cattle with calm genetics have a gigantic flight zone if they've never seen people on foot. I've seen a situation where cattle have been, may have about a five or six meter a flight zone to a person on a horse, but then when they see a person on foot, the flight zone's five times bigger. Think about it. The person on the horse looks completely different than the person on foot. And that can get really dangerous in auction pens. Now, one of the ways to, to help reduce that flight zone would be to walk out there and you gradually you know, penetrate the flight zone a little bit and they don't move and then you back off and you can gradually penetrate a little bit more and gradually work with them to get them to have a, have a smaller flight zone. But an animal thinks in pictures. And my student, Megan Corrigan's done an interesting study where um, it just showed that a horse uh, will thinks a children's play set is a new object when you turn it. Now, a little children's play set that has a slide and a swing on it, walk young colts and fillies by it 15 times until they no longer stop, no longer react. You rotate that play set, think about it. If this is the slide on the play set, 
when you rotate it, it looks totally different. It looks completely different. And I just uh, held up a stapler. Don't forget the podcast is audio only. Um, and that's why it's important to show uh, horses, for example, all sides of things. And a lot of my papers are easy to find if you go on to Google Scholar. And there's also links um, from uh, Grandin.com. But I always knew that the horse would treat that as a new object. But we actually did a little scientific experiment, got it published in, um, in the Animals Journal to show that, yes, it, the horse did think it was a new object. And if you'd been galloping past that place, you would have got dumped off. This was all done in a walk because it would have been dangerous. I want to address a question in here. Uh, he said it's hard to talk to new producers in only five minutes. Well, I would agree with that. This is where, in order to help a new producer, it's going to take, you know, so quite a, you know several visits to the farm and a lot more time than five minutes. But it's really important when we, I think it's you know to get these better ways of doing things on, um, get people doing them and make sure that an early adopter or someone wants to adopt this not fail and have a complete mess and then tell all his neighbors how horrible it is. It's going to be worth your time to help that person not be a failure. No, you can't do it in five minutes. And if you go into the um, my website, grandin.com, and go into the cattle behavior section, there's links to research papers. I also have got a research section. And uh, when you go to my research section on the website, there's a link to cattle, a link to horses. You can find that paper in the link to horses. You can There's the links to all my papers um, that I've done with my students uh, in that research section. That's a great resource. Um, Phil, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, for the, I, the, I guess my biggest, <laughs> my biggest thing is when do we, when is it to the point, when do you decide, I guess, time frame wise that this animal is not salvageable and is just, there's nothing I can do. Well, you do- if you have a whole bunch of cattle you and, and let's say a hundred cattle or 50 cattle and all the others have calmed down, you got one crazy well, you probably want to get rid of her. You think she's going to hurt you, especially after all the other cattle have calmed down, then you might want to get rid of her. I mean, she's not worth keeping if she's going to put you in the hospital. But on the other hand, we don't want to take temperament select our cattle to the point where they're so calm that maybe they won't get out and raise. It, it's, uh, you can overdo things. Well, I'm just, I live in a very unique area where we have a ton of timber wolves, so we kind of want them a little bit wild. Well, you want a little nah. bit. You want, a, you want a little bit wild. You want an animal that will defend her calf. That you definitely want. And there was a rancher named Lassiter. I went to their ranch oh, like 25 years ago, and he had beautiful, really gentle cattle. And he selected them a very interesting way he selected them. The calves had to eat a, a piece of you know, delicious food off the end of a stick where he wouldn't keep them. And the other thing is you give me a calf every year or I get rid of you. So you end up with a cow that will defend her calf, but she's not going to kill you. And that's kind of an interesting selection criteria because that's basically what you want. Now I, I heard just the other day about a situation of overselecting. You know, years ago, I wrote in my book, Animals in Translation, about a problem with um, roosters in a broiler breeder colony slashing and killing hens. You know, they bred for repro, they bred for repro, and they bred a maniac rooster. 
And then five years ago, I went out and visited a boiler farm and the rooster was a gentleman. They no longer had to cut his toenails off. And now I just found out they read a rooster that doesn't, a rooster doesn't want to breathe. And I said, well, you've read all the guy out of the rooster. You see, you've gone too far. I don't want to kill a rooster that slashes hens and kills them. That's horrible. But on the other hand, I want a rooster that's going to breed. You see, this is where you got to, you get what's optimal. One of the mistakes that I think has been made in some temperament selection is getting cattle too sluggish. Yeah, that, that you don't want. I remember we had an animal handling demonstration at uh, Grow a few years ago. And, and one of the, it was probably uh, very difficult for the handler because we had some in there that were bottle babies and some that were absolutely crazy. <laughs> and it Definitely made quite a, a dynamic change in how to manage them. Like some would be just bouncing off the far wall and the other ones would be trying to, you know, get a snack out of your pocket. So, well, um, and the other thing with the ones, you know, then there's all the arguments about whether I lead cattle or do I drive them. I think both can work. Um, I'm going to look at outcomes. It's, I think it's important for cattle to learn how to drive in and out of a gate. So when they with a person on foot, so when they go to an auction or they go to a meat plant, uh, they're not going to freak out. And then you put them in a pen, they rebound back and run over the top of somebody there. And that's happened. And, and a person died when that happened. Now they get the super tame cattle. What you've got to do there is they need to have manners. Don't push and shove on me. You want me to give you a, a little bit of feed? You're pushing and shoving. I won't give it to you. You're trying to eat it off the back of the four-wheeler. You don't get it. Polite, and then I put the feed down. Then you're switching pastures, and they're shoving around to the gate. I'll open the gate, and they're shoving around. Then you've rewarded shoving. Now, the instant you see a little bit of calm behavior, then you open the gate. Manners, ladies. Manners. That reminds me of my the story I told my mom not too many years ago. I used to go out and feed the cattle. I was probably eight years old, you know, trying to carry two chop bales. You know, an eight-year-old, you know how yeah. how high a chop bale is. It was pretty yeah. difficult. And we had this old bull that would come up and he would always try and stick his nose right in the chop pail. And uh he would knock me over and I would turn around, wind up, and punch him right in the forehead. And then he'd back off a little bit and then I'd go another 10 or 12 feet. And so I told this story to my mom like 25 years after it happened, and she was like devastated that I was out there doing that. But yeah. um, <laughs> that's that's my little crazy story from when I was a kid. Phil, I got one more thing to add. I wrote it down here while Temple was answering your question. Um, we're talking about the, the difference in how the cattle see the equipment or the, or the horse or the quad with a person yeah, on it versus right. someone, someone standing. Um, I found out years ago when we were calving out cattle, um, I would try and tag the calves. And if I had one that looked like it was a little bit ornery and I was, you know, it was going to be a little bit of risk. Um, I was on a quad at the time. I would pick up that calf really quick, jump on the quad. As soon as I sat on that quad with that calf, the cow lost sight of us, right? The, 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 and the cow no longer saw me and the calf. And all of a sudden she'd wander off and go looking for the calf. And I would drive away and then I could treat the calf somewhere else where she can't see me. And then I would bring the calf back. Of course, she's wandering around. And as soon as I put that calf back on the ground, she saw him again. It's kind of weird. You see, think about it visually. I have a class I do in livestock handling. And I talked about that experiment where I rotated the place set and it became something new. I asked my students to ask, you know, do, do you have any examples of um of this situation and one girl wrote on the chat that um, she put her horse's feed trough up on end 
and her horse was afraid of it. It made something change. Another one of my students had a big domed case that you put a cowboy hat in, and she had ridden on her horse with that. She had it on the ground all around her horse. And one day she set that domed case on a picnic table and her horse went berserk. Somehow when it was on the picnic table, it turned into something else. But think, think about it. Uh, let's say let's say we were out riding and you saw the playset rotated. You're going to just go, that's a child's toy. You wouldn't be afraid of it. Even though it's rotated, you'd know what it is. But I also repeated the uh, Megan's experiment at a horse clinic. We did this at a walk, absolutely a walk. And they had a big, weird, they had a big, weird green plastic chair. And they rode their horses by it. And the horses, there were probably six, you know, six, seven horses walking by this chair. And when they first walked by it, they stopped and then had them walk by it you know, five or six times till they no longer stopped. Then, then I rotated the chair 90 degrees. Half those horses did a hard stop. Now that would have been real serious at a gallop. And everybody was kind of surprised how the horses reacted when the chair was rotated. And you need, so you, what, what this shows you is you need to get animals used to all sides of something. I mean, even a, a vehicle, a pickup truck looks very different from the front than it does from the side. If you think about the way even humans see things though, right? Until we fully see something and understand its purpose, we don't know what it is. And often we end up being afraid of things because of the fact that we don't know something's purpose. So it'd be no different with animals, I would imagine, right, Temple? Well, the other thing that's really important is an animal's first experience with something new, like a four-wheeler, for example, needs to be a good first experience. The first experience should be not, not be chasing them with it. How about bringing a feed out with it? First experiences with new people, new pieces of equipment. Let's say you put in a new corral system. Well, bring your animals in and feed them in the corrals. Let them walk through the chutes, and then you feed them after they walk through the chutes. Make these first experiences good. Now, sometimes you got to do something in there that's not, you know, not real fun, but it's really important that that's not the first experience because bad first experiences with something like a horse trailer they don't forget and we talk about animals being agitated whatnot what is that it's fear animal throwing a fit in a squeeze chute that's fear in fact my student Bridget Wozniak 25 years ago did the first research on on cattle temperament and cattle are much wilder back in the mid-90s and people thought it was crazy. We're going to measure how much cattle jump around in squeeze chutes. That's really crazy. Well, it turned out that the ones that jumped around in the squeeze chute um, had lower weight gain. And now it's been replicated. Now I think we're getting into some cattle where maybe um, we've gone too far on, on some of this temperament selection. Because when we first started 25 years ago, when you scored shoot squirrels, just how much they struggle in the chute, that was probably motivated by fear. And your other way of measuring temperament is how fast they come out. And you can do it walk, trot, and canter, or you can do it uh, with electronic eye. I think both those things measured fear in the beginning. But now, within the last 10 years, what the data is showing is that the shoot score is measuring something different than the exit speed score. That's what the mathematics started showing up. Exit speed is probably measuring fear. But I think sometimes in the shoot, they, they get a little anger kind of thing where um, they're real calm and you may have gone too far. They're real calm, you touch the button, they'll kick your head off and aim it. 
And then they walk out of the chute really quietly. And then they'll take that hind leg and go, well, they're like flipping it to you. We have to start looking at what is optimal. You know, oftentimes people don't know where to stop. The other thing is you don't realize how much you've changed cattle. Oh, about three years ago, um, we bred a very, very crazy steer. They tried some new semen on our Angus herd. And I had, a, I had him in my lab. I call him the time machine. And he was completely crazy compared to the other cattle. And I'm going, whoa, this is probably more like what cattle used to be. But you forget. And the time machine is trying to bust out of our handling facility while the other cattle are just standing in a lead-up chute. And they all had exactly the same previous experiences. Well, that was a genetic difference. And I go, wow. And genetics right. makes such a big difference. Next up, we have Tom Richards. Tom, are you ready to go? You bet, Temple. Nice to meet you. Uh, you're a wow factor. I'm I'm just new at this game, learning from Steve and Amber, and and uh, this is exciting for me. So I, I guess my question is, uh, I always use the scenario, shake a magic wand and change one thing about, like you say, about uh, the future of cattle and grazing and sustainable agriculture. What would it be in, in your mind? Well, I think we need to get the animals and the land back together. We had a seminar about four years ago where they brought an agronomy professor in. This again, let's get out of our livestock box here in our department. And he explained how the grazing animal created our finest cropland in Iowa and Illinois. Bison, great herds of bison. And we need to be getting the animals and the, the, the crops back together again. And the whole idea of some of these high density grazing systems is to kind of replicate using fencing how they um, you you bring them in pretty dense, short period of time, mow the grass, move on, give it plenty of time to regenerate. But there's been some problems where there's where animals have gotten stressed. So maybe when you first do it, you try to bunch them too tight. You've gradually, you've got to get the animals used to it. Because they did have a big mess where they uh, recently, like a couple of years ago, there was a big experiment done. They just got a bunch of cattle and they just, cows and cows and jammed them in too tight and did it right around breeding time. Not smart. You know, let's go a little more gradually. And then, of course, that gets out to everybody that, you know, that that was a mess. Uh, one of the things to look at is you want, when you change paddocks, controlled movement. You don't want mamas running into the other paddock and ditching their babies and leaving the babies. Controlled movement through the gate. Well, they walk through it a walk. That's what you want. Tom, I would be carrying the same magic wand as Temple. To get the animals back out on the land would be one of the most important things we could do for the industry. Um, I think we've got to do just... it. I talked to a farmer just the other day. He um, wanted to buy my humane handling book for a Christmas present. And he was complaining that the price of fertilizer had gone up three times. This was, that was just yesterday, actually. But I think getting, you know, we've got to, I think these are things we're going to have to do in the future because we have all this land in the world that you can't crop it because it doesn't have enough water to irrigate it. Uh, recently, I flew across West Texas area, uh, even at 35,000 feet, you can see a cluster of maybe four center pivot circles and two are green and two are off. That's because they're running out of water. 
and from 35,000 feet, you can see that. Now there'll be another cluster of five and two are shut off. You know, and that was this year. That's um, a broken water cycle. Well, that's the problem. Right? We have a we have a global issue of a broken water cycle. Well, I know there's, there's no such thing as a water shortage. It's a, a water mismanagement, right? We've got a whole system that is out of whack, right? There's there's a limited amount of H and O on this planet. Well, we have plenty of water back east, and we're getting floods, and yeah. you know, and here we've got uh, we've got droughts. Yeah, it's a messed up water cycle. Well, here's somebody's asking a question about chute layout. Um, since most people tend to work their cattle in the morning, I don't want to face the squeeze chute of the loading ramp east. That early morning sun coming up is just going to be, that'll be really horrible. That one's Claire. Claire, do you want to come on and, and ask your question? Basically kind of saying that we have a tendency to design, you know, we do it with loads of different things. We design something and then we expect the user to work around our design. Like furniture designers are, you know, are awful for doing this. You know, they design something and then we have to sit around their designs. So is there, has anyone kind of tried different designs or different layouts over the years and found that that's Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different designs that have been tried. And then there's a few things that are really wrong. And one the first one is dead ending the single file shoot. One of the most critical parts of any corral design is where your crowding pan, whatever design you have, joins your single file. That's very, very critical. And if that's laid out wrong, that can be a gigantic mess. And when an animal stands at the entrance, looking up the single file shoot, they need to be able to see up their two body lines. And so a common mistake made in curve systems, bending that too tightly right where it joins the crowd pen. Another mistake, is if the angle of the crowd pen going into a single file race is too gradual, then they just get stuck in it. If you're making a very simple V-shaped entrance, make one side straight, the other side on a 30 degree angle. One side straight, the other side on a 30 degree angle. And that's shown in all my books. It's also shown on my, my website. But Animals got to see that there is a place to go. Now, sometimes, if let's say you have a, a crowd system that actually is a laid out lawn, sometimes you can fix that by working on the opposite side of the crowd pen. Like if it's a tub system, instead of working all around the perimeter of the tub, you stand at the uh, pivot. I call that working the pivot of the gate. And you take a flag and they'll just come right on around. That's sometimes an easy fix for something where it's not laid out right. It's just try working the other side. And sometimes that works. And the other thing, don't put too many cattle in the crowd pen. Also, backstop gates, they cause blocking. If you have a backstop gate right where the cattle enter the crowd pen, uh, they're going to tend to stop because they don't want to go clumping through it. So you might want to put a remote control rope on it so you can hold it open. And if you are going to use backstops, I prefer the ones that are hinged on the top. They need to be counterweighted, put a remote control rope on it. But the other thing is just to have a sliding gate there. You don't want anything at that entrance that's going to stop them. And if you put a remote control rope on a backstop gate, make sure it pulls up tight because if that backstop jiggles, guess what? They won't go in. You also have to mount the pivot point of the backstop high enough so a cow doesn't think she's going to hit her back on it. A lot of these cattle are taller. One of the things that's bad is a lot of my old drawings. The pivot point of the backstop is too low. 
also the shoots are too narrow, cattle have gotten bigger and broader. Claire, um, your original question was about uh, you know getting the right design. Um, sometimes it's not even necessarily the, the design that's the problem. Sometimes it's the the, the human side, the people oh, absolutely. side. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. If, if they yeah. are not. Yeah, if they're not 100% behind what you're doing, like if you've got a manager who doesn't really think this is going to work or they're not gung-ho about it, it won't work. Well, that's right. You've got to, everybody's got to be on board or or it doesn't matter what system you have, it's not going to work. Well, one of the things we need to do on getting cattle trained, okay, Clay's got a chat there, is spend some time walking out amongst your cattle and getting them used to you, getting them, you know, moving your cattle and, and moving them in a way that the calves don't get separated before you even do a paddock move. And one of the things that will help them not get separated, if you can get controlled movement through that gate, that's one of the most important things. And, and, and it's gonna require in the beginning, spending time with your cattle to tame them down. That's gonna take some time. And then once you get them trained, then it's easy to change pastures. And I would recommend perfect. working with somebody local in your area that knows how to do this really well and have them come out and just show you. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have Charlotte up next. Are you ready to go, Charlotte? Thank you so much. I really enjoyed um, the talk. I came in a bit late, so I'm, I'm hoping you didn't talk about this at the beginning. Um, but my question, I think, Temple, you kind of already touched on it, is about keeping animal welfare front of mind when we're doing high density cell grazing type systems just interested in your thoughts about that well one of the things we got to be really careful about is how the little baby calves are, are reacting they keep up with mom everything's going to be fine if you you do it right you soon it's going to take some effort i think also we have to look at everything we do and if somebody films it with a phone how is that going to get you know look on on youtube or some video thing one of the problems now is you've got some activists they went out to a feed yard and and they well they complained about heat stress at the feed yard and that's something i think needs to be addressed you know how we can address that in the feed yard why don't we just use solar panels for shade and that'll pay for the shade make the shade out of solar panels and you want to put it nice and high up so that they at least down in the, in the states we've got areas now where we're going to, with, especially with dark black cattle, big fat ones, we're going to have to start giving them shade. I was just talking to some people today, solar panels. And I would just start out with, um, you know, try one pan so you learn how to build the shade so the solar panels won't break and stuff like that. And because that, that we're going to have to look at. But then it disturbs me greatly when an activist puts up a video showing normal truck loading and calling that just shoving cattle up a chute. When they were walking up there just fine and calling a squeeze shoot a steel box and now we're shoving hormones in their ear, showing normal stuff that had nothing wrong with it. Temple, you'll be happy with uh, my story here. This summer, I had a uh, fellow from Vancouver actually phone me. He was the designer of a couple of the very large solar systems that are in southern Alberta. One of them is by Brooks, I believe. Yeah. And he wanted some advice on grazing animals underneath all the solar panels, right? The, the, the one frustrating thing that I've had in the past is you look at all these great big solar farms and they, they basically put it on gravel. I helped design two of these great big solar farms and they were bringing in sheep and I told them, let them do it for free. 
No, you don't even don't even charge the farmer. You need to get the farmer in there to get the get those animals in there and start you know sequestering some more carbon. Do whatever underneath there because. I mean, yes, you're doing a good thing with solar panels, but you're you're wasting a whole lot of sunlight there when it's hitting that gravel beside it. So I was really excited. I did I did the consulting for free good. because I, I just was so excited that they were even interested in doing that. So well, one thing I'd recommend is spacing the panels a little further apart so that you can get some sun in there to uh, grow the grass. And then for cattle, you're going to just have to make them higher. Now, I don't want to put goats under the low ones. I'm afraid they're going to eat the wires, wreck the wires, and electrocute themselves. They, the sheep probably won't do that. Oh, to me, it was a farmer's uh, dream come true because he had these beautiful chain-link fences all around as a perimeter. I mean, you couldn't get a better perimeter fence. Do a little bit of cross-fencing in there, and boy, they, I, well, I hope they Well, they need to do wonderful. some cross-fencing because otherwise they're going to just cherry-pick it. Yeah, you know, no, so that's what doing, I helped design it. Well, good. But these are the kind of things that we need to be doing where we're using livestock to improve land. You know, as things get more and more criticized, um, I've had people call me the evil slaughterhouse designer. I've had some very nasty stuff posted where they said that take Nazi prison camp pictures and intersperse those pictures of some of my facilities. So I'm going, okay, they're calling me the evil slaughterhouse designer. Got to really think deeply about things. There's a lot of people out there that know a lot about grazing, but I'm a big supporter of this because we've got to show how the grazing animal is part of a sustainable agriculture, truly sustainable agriculture. And we got to get the land and the crops and the grazers all back together again. And do For it right. sure. I sometimes wonder, Temple, if any of these people that criticize the slaughterhouses or anything, if they've ever actually watched what a wild animal will do to a domestic animal, animal if it catches it, or what starvation or um, disease look like in wild animals. Because that's far crueler than than a lot of what we're doing currently. Well, I have a picture where I show one. Oh, that's a pig farm with the snow up on the, you know, drifted up on the roof, a lion ripping up something. You know, nature can be very harsh. I want to answer one question here about an open, um, one side open as opposed to catwalks. I actually like that design where you make your solid, your outer radius, where the people are not working, that's solid, the block the trucks and block the distractions, but your inner side where the person works open on the upper half. I don't want the bottom half open too many feet get out, but I keep saying, I can't demonstrate my hands, but, but maybe solid up to about the level of your belt to keep the feet in and then no catwalk. And then you can work the flight zone on working on the ground. Now, if you have a chute with an open side, you've got to kind of imagine that flight zone, like a force field that comes out of that chute. And you got to stay away from that. You can't just stand there in that flight zone because the animal, you know, they'll start pooping and they'll start jumping around. And then you back up out of the flight zone, they'll calm down. So there's, I've actually drawn lines along the side of a single file chute with an open side. And if everybody stayed outside of it, every, all the cattle were calm. And then you only enter that zone to make them move. And that can work really, really well. But it takes a bit more skill. And uh, the other thing is, at my age right now, I don't like jumping up and down off catwalks anymore. I hate to say it, <laughs> but it, it's going to take a bit more skill to, to work that. And now some cattle have a bigger flights on another cattle. You got like tame pets there; they won't care if you stand next to them. But you got some cattle that have some flights on. You might need to stay ten feet, 
15 feet away from it until it's time to move them. You know, so the the thing to do is block outer fences. And a lot of, you know, there's some low stress stockmanship on people that say all the fences ought to be open. But when you look at the handling facility, they've got it inside a metal shed with sides. So that is a solid outer perimeter. And in my um, Temple Grand Guide to Working with Farm Animals, my newer book, I completely talk about that. And I've got an appendix in Humane Livestock Handling where I talk about that. I had one corral system uh, built years ago. And I left. So as they entered the alley system, it was a curve. Yeah. Um, but I left the outside see-through, right? I left spaces between the boards because just outside of that was the the holding pen that, that you're drawing from. Well, then so, they're going to see the other cattle. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, they see, just this is where this is where you've got this. You, you see that situation that helped you get them in. Yeah. But let's say trucks were going by. Yeah. There, then that would not help you. Yeah. I it kept the inside out. actually solid because that's where the people were working and all the action, but the outside, I kept it uh, open because that's where the the herd was standing and they fought to get in that alleyway. And then I did have a catwalk that if the people needed to use it, they could jump up and then be visible. Um, That worked really well Well, to have those cattle. There's a lot of different things that can work. Some things are personal preference. So let's talk about how do we keep handling good? And I'm a big proponent of measuring things. And back in 1999, I was I implemented the McDonald's animal welfare audits at slaughterhouses and used a very simple scoring system. Like how many times they poke them an electric prod, how many times they beller went right when they were trying to move them and falling down. When you start measuring it, you go from 100% of the cattle being hit with hit with electric prod down to maybe 5%. You know, or, or you have a lot of animals falling down and it drops really low because you fixed the flooring or you just calmed things down. And the thing I've found is you go out and you work with people on their handling, get it super nice. And then you come back a year later and the handling's deteriorated. And they're jamming more cattle in the crowd pen. But the problem is, is that this deterioration happened slowly and people didn't realize how bad it had gotten. And I came back a year later and go, oh, yuck. They put 30 cattle in the crowd pen. That's just horrible. One of the things you need to do is figure out, especially like the number of animals you put in the crowd pen, you find out what really works right for different weights of animals, and then you have to just enforce it. Say, well, this facility, it's five. This facility, it might be 10, you know, this weight animal. I've found that the most important person in a facility is the one at the back. Yes, I would agree with that. I would totally agree with that. I've said for years, I fix the back end, the front end fixes itself. Yeah, don't put the most experienced people at the squeeze, right? You got to put the the best handlers at the back end and that makes everything else work so much better. And the ones that want to yell and scream and and run too many cattle, they can go up and uh, uh, read the ear, put the ear tags on or something like that. (laughs) I agree. Get the back end calm down. Then the cattle in the squeeze chute are so much calmer. It's just that simple. You got cattle pooping all over the handling facility. You're getting them way too excited. Yeah. Um, we had a question. It's kind of changing directions a little bit, but this is from Holly and she doesn't have a mic. Uh, she said with horses, what should we be doing to change our grazing practices to help sustain our pastures for the future? Well, we've got to, you know, get, start doing a program that works. There's one basic thing 
that I learned about pasture. The very basic, there's certain things that are real principles. The grass part, the green stuff on the top, regenerates faster than the roots. So to rest it properly, you've got to give it time for the roots to also regenerate. Enough rest time. And that you're going to need to get extremely good local advice. Now, somebody here says the yellers can wreck the needles and the ear tags too. Well, I'd rather have them there than in the back getting the cattle all stirred up. Because you get the cattle stirred up, it's going to take 20 minutes for those cattle to calm down. But I would recommend that anybody who wants to work on improved grazing to get extremely good local advice. And let's start out with easy stuff first. Uh, when I talked to the lady in Nebraska, and that was last year, that was recent. There's somebody came in and said, oh, you got to have biodiversity. you got to put 100 seeds in the cedar. And she's going, ah, don't do that to beginner. Let's start working into it gradually. So you shouldn't bring like 500 cattle onto your farm no, if you've no, only no, ever no. had chickens. <laughs> I suggested 20, 50 at the most. Right. Yeah. I, I let's learn to walk first. And I want to make sure the cattle that come in are not wild because I want this lady that raises chickens and raises corn and soy to have a good experience with this and not have a mess. For it's sure. It's really important that our early adopters don't fail. Yeah. And I definitely. get really good advice from the University of Nebraska and from local people that are successful in this. Because I want it to work. Yeah. Claire here had a question about music. And I think that's an amazing question. Well, the thing is, it's important to get animals um, used to a lot of different things. Because some of the worst horses and worst cattle uh, to go berserk when they go to a place like an auction are the ones that have lived too sheltered a life. They need to have different people coming around, different vehicles. If it's a show animal, different people touching it. And the same thing, I see a lot of dogs today. There's more problems with um, afraid of the vet, afraid of everything. Well, they don't get exposed to very many different things. And so Just, you need to get the cattle used to a lot, you know, different people being around, uh, big trucks, little trucks, four-wheelers, drones is another issue. We had uh, years ago, we had a herd come in and the owners are do everything on horseback. But I don't. So this herd came from somewhere else. They weren't from the farm. They came to our ranch. We grazed them for the summer. And then the owners wanted to come and help round them up. And they brought all their horses to bring them in. And the animals didn't know what that was, right? They're used to me and my little side-by-side. You see, they don't know what it is. Yeah, so they were you freaking think, think out. Think about it as they a were picture. Losing They're mind. used to you in a quad. They never saw cowboys on horses. They don't know what it is. Yeah. You see, that's that's the thing. And it's been some there was a hideous accident. One of the meatpacking plants years ago, uh, I think from cattle, the feed yard where they only been handled on horses. At this particular feed yard, they even did a loadout shoot. They used horses. They used horses up in the you know, vaccinating area. And these cattle went into a pen. They caught it on a security camera. This was before they were using you know, cameras to audit with. And I saw I saw black dots go into a pen. Black dots came out. There was a distant parking lot camera, and there was a 50-year-old lady under their feet, and her head was stepped on. Hideous accident. Died several months later from brain injury. Some of the worst cattle I've ever seen to handle on foot are the ones that have only been handled on horses. 
And if you get some of those cattle, let's say you got some of those, you're going to have to spend some time with them to um, tame them down. And that's going to take some time. Well, the, what the music does, I had some pigs where, where um, in a research project when I was in my graduate school, and we put in not just music, but a radio station that played a variety of music, but also some news and talk. And the pigs that had that were much less likely to startle. We had an airport right next to our pig farm, and I'd be in the pig farm, and a plane would fly over, and all the pigs would just get completely still, and then they'd go berserk, jumping up and down. And the pigs that had the the radio playing, they were much less reactive to a car driving up to the building, to a plane flying over, people coming in, because they now are hearing a more of a variety of sound. That's, that's really interesting. I was, the other question I had, sorry, I don't want to take up too much time, was have you noticed that the animals get less sick? Because I was at the Oxford Real Farming Conference, which was on in January, and a huge thing was the amount of you know chemicals that are fed to animals because animals get sick more often. Have you noticed that with better, all the work you're doing, that the animals don't get as sick as often and therefore don't need to be medicated as much? Is that something you've noticed? The, one of the problems we got with wormers and things is the you know, parasites are getting immune to it. And there's things you can do with pasture rotation that, that are going to help. Uh, somebody asked about maximum stocking densities. Again, I want you to get very good local advice from people that are successful in your area. Because it's very, very site specific. That's an engineering term. Where something that might work in southern Alberta would be bad in Nebraska. The worst animals for going crazy when you take them somewhere else are the ones that have a high fear genetics and they live too sheltered a life. Some of the worst bulls that ever went into a test station that had one farmer, one truck, only thing they'd ever seen. And when they went to the bull test station, they went berserk and they told the farmer to come and get his bulls and get them out of there before they killed somebody. He walked up to them, put holders on them and let them away. You see, that was fear of novelty. See, the thing about something new New things are attractive if the animal can voluntarily approach. Like if I took that green chair that we used with the horses and put it out in the middle of the pasture and just let it sit there, the cows are going to come up to it if they're, when they can just voluntarily approach it. Now, if that chair just suddenly dropped out of the sky, they're going to be afraid of it. Sudden novelty is really stressful. Steve, gonna, did you have anything there? Yeah, uh, Claire, um, I guess I go back to the old saying of uh, a happy cow is a healthy cow. Right? If you can keep the stress levels down, keep them comfortable, you know, keep them in, uh, I would say familiar, but, you know, it doesn't have to be always the same thing, but something that where they're not always stressed out, uh, water stress, heat stress. Obviously, you want to be feeding them at the same time. They're feeding supplements that they don't like to be fed at different times of day, but they need to get used to different vehicles, different people. Then when they go to a sale barn or they go to feed yard, they're going to be less afraid of new things. You got dogs today. They're afraid of everything. Oh, yeah. A lot of these dogs lead way too sheltered a life. Here's an interesting experiment that was done with cats. Which cat do you think would be more likely to scratch a veterinarian? An indoor cat or an outdoor cat? Indoor. Indoor. (laughs) And unfortunately, the student who did that project never published it. She did it at a cat clinic. She had something like 500 cat records. <laughs> Indoor cats are more likely to bite and scratch. And that's fear. 
Yeah. On the music thing, it's really interesting. I'll go out. So depending if I'm running the grow heifer pasture, which I'm out there all the time, I'll have my phone playing music all the time when I'm out there and the cattle just love it. They, they don't care. They're they'll hang around me. No problem. But then when I go to some of our herds, especially the more flighty ones, I can walk out there just fine with them. But the moment I put my music on because they're not used to it, they're on the other side of the paddock and they're all, but you see that sudden novelty. Mm-hmm. You see that that music is, in that situation. That music is something totally different. Also, animals make different associations. When I talk to you know pet veterinarians, he says, "Should I wear my white coat or not wear it?" And I said, "It depends upon how the dog views that white coat. If he was if you use kind of fear free methods, and the first experience with the person wearing a white coat is a lot of traits, then you want to put your white coat on." But if your first experience with a white coat is getting manhandled and they just roughly shove the shot into you, then you need to take the coat off because animals can get fear memories with something they see or hear right when something really bad happens. Right. So you got to look at how your animal's viewing it. It's one for one dog. You might want to wear the white coat. The other one, I want to get rid of the white coat (laughs) and maybe do the exam outside even. Definitely. Um, Al had a question. Al, are you ready? Maybe he's not. He asked if cows are left or right-handed. Well, they, um, there's been some interesting stuff done on what's called laterality. You can actually look that up on Google Scholar. You remember in high school biology, the visual, the optic nerve paths cross in the brain. So the right eye goes to the left brain. Now, you remember the old thing about the right brain being emotional and the left brain being logical? Okay, so if you look at something with your left eye, you're going to your right brain, the more emotional. You look at something with your right eye, it's going to the left brain. And there is some interesting research that um, things that cows like, they tend to like use the right eye, which is left brained. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but there's actually research on this. You can go on to Google Scholar and just type in cattle eye laterality, and you'll find find a bunch of papers. Stuff they're afraid of, they'll look at with the left eye, which goes to the right brain, because you got to remember the optic nerves cross in the brain from your high school biology. (laughs) <laughs> That's fascinating. <laughs> but then originally when I laid out cattle handling facilities, uh, the, I think the most important thing, if you have more than one facility on a ranch that the cattle are going to use, make sure they're both laid out the same, go the same way. That's probably the most important thing. That makes sense. Karen is up next. Karen, you want to go ahead? Hi, yeah. Sure. Temple, this has been very, very interesting. Um, my question is, um, have you worked with bison? What how what have you seen in difference in between working with bison versus cattle? I know someone else had a similar Oh, they are they are very different. Bison have a hair trigger flight zone. You touch the edge of the flight zone, they take off. Another thing with bison. I don't recommend lining them up and making six bison wait single file shoot like you would with cattle. They're going to get in trouble. And then people gate them off with sliding gates and they're going zircon in, in between the sliding gates. It's better with bison to put like four, maybe four in a crowd pen and you just bring them up onesies at maybe twosies at a time and don't cue them up like you would with cattle. And when they stick that tail straight up, that's bad. But, you know, when goats stick the trail, tail track straight up, they're happy. Bison, when they stick the tail straight up, watch out. The other thing you want to be careful of is the lone animal. 
you have a lone animal, let's say left in a, in a crowd pen or in a small pen, doesn't know where its herd mates are gone, going berserk. That's the animal that hurts itself and lands people in the hospital. And you're going to have the biggest problem with this with cattle that um, have the flighty genetics. They're going to get more upset when they get separated from the other animals. Very interesting. Thanks, Tim. Okay, but yeah, a bunch of questions here on weaning. The research is showing that either fence line weaning or the nose flaps is better than just yanking them apart. And which way you go to depend upon your vaccination protocol. If you use those nose flaps, you're going to get real high quality ones where they're the plastic is molded really smooth and nice. So it won't um, hurt their nose. One thing so, I've heard about weaning before Temple is uh, uh, it's best to wean the cow. Yeah, that's not, right. Not the calf, right? If you that's have right. to split them, take, you know, mom and mom and calf are in the same pasture or paddock or wherever they're at. If you have to split them, take the cows away. That's right. Leave, You're absolutely leave right. Leave the calves absolutely where they are. Right. Absolutely right. And you leave the calves on the home turf and take the cows away. Same thing with pigs. You take the sow away and the piglets are still in the feraling pen. That's the same idea. So that the piglets or the calf are not having the stress of a new environment. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Next up, we had Tom Richards. Tom, are you ready to go? You bet. Actually, Amber, I think Temple, I think you answered it. You read it and said it's it's area specific yeah. for each area, my question. So I, I appreciate that. So Steve, I'm, I'm maybe going to hammer on you, buddy, to educate me with that one. Uh, a starting stocking rate in terms of uh, high intensity grazing, but low stress for the cattle. Cause I heard you say that temple that with mob grazing, there's been some bad things. Well, they've happening had, they've had some messes. And I think what happened is they took cattle that um, weren't used to being, you know, pushed in close together and did it right around breeding. That was a complete mess. You know, let's start out with a small amount of cattle and gradually learn how to do it. Yeah. Tom, I think there's a, there's an economic threshold on every pasture on, on the intensity. Okay. We're, we're getting into grazing here now. If, if you've got the two extremes, right. Uh, very high stock density, mob grazing and continuous grazing. Okay. Every pasture is different. Every situation is different. Somewhere in between there is your economic threshold where the amount of labor and effort you put into it gives you, you know, compared to the amount of benefit you get on the land or, you know, right. the, the stress of the animals or the gains on the animals, right? So well, there's that's a- absolutely right. And I think what happened when this in this mess is they, they took some cattle that were just used to just regular out in the pasture, run around the big area and crammed them all together in mob grazing. And at, so, at times yeah. it can be too high for the given situation. And the economics comes into it as well. Let's say you've got a pasture that's 30 miles away. Okay, and you're going to run down there every two hours and, and move a fence, right? Your not. economics gets that's blown right. through the, the roof. Whereas no. if it's right outside your back door, maybe that's more economical to do. That's so, right. And, uh, you know, and again, very, very local specific. I'll never forget the, when I went to pasture workshop and I learned about the roots have got to regenerate and they regenerate more slowly than the grass part. Well, there's a lot of exciting things that happen, you know, happening on, you know, people are, you know, people are also figuring out really innovative things. They really are. Next up, we have Jordan. Are you ready to go, Jordan? Yeah, I'm good. Hi, Temple. Uh, okay. My question is about uh, weaning. I think you kind of already answered it, though. Just what would be the most low stress 
way of weaning. We have like 200 plus heads. So the nose, like, I love the idea of the nose flaps. I just don't think it's super economical. Well, there are to, a lot of extra work. And so yeah. the other alternative is fence line weaning. I really like what Linda Pola talks about cross weaning sheep here. And she put the, but the lambs were in with the, not with their moms. Yeah, it, it was because I was trying to um, deal with some pasture problems and I wanted to keep them out on pastures uh, instead of bring them in to eat. And so it was just, it was a kind of an accident and it was the greatest thing ever. I mean, it was just like, they all just stayed calm. Um, the lambs were three months old, so we're not getting a lot of milk at the time anyhow, yeah. because they were a little older. And it's just like, I don't know that I'm ever going to do it different than that again. It was so easy. Well, that's good. And this is the thing that's good about these kind of forums is the sharing of ideas. Really, really important. Steve, did you have anything on that? Uh, no, I just really, really like that, Linda. Um, it's kind of like letting your auntie take care of your kid all the time, right? <laughs> it's uh, yeah, great, great idea. No, go ahead with the next question there, Amber. Okay. Uh, next up, we have Big Tom. Tempo, it's uh, been really enjoyable listening to you this evening. I first heard of you on a 60 minute special a lot of years ago. I have no idea how long ago that was, but you had a segment on there. But just curious to know if, you, if you've done any work with sheep. And uh, as far as Linda goes, that's exactly how we wean our lambs. We move the ewes to another pasture, uh, typically far enough away that they uh, can't see the lambs. And it doesn't phase the lambs at all. They just keep eating, keep growing. No. But, but just, just curious to know if you've done any work with sheep. Yeah, I've done, I have done some work with sheep. And the one thing that's different is sheep you can handle through a shoot and continuous flow. Cattle and pigs at small separate bunches. You bring small separate bunches up into the crowd pen. And after restricting them, they bring up sheep, you can get them going and they'll just flow. That's mm -hmm. something that's that's different. They have such an intense following behavior. Yeah, I've always, uh, always said that sheep flow like water. Yeah. Once yes, you get them going, they right. go. And, and if they don't want to go, boy, if there's something wrong. I remember one time I went to this, I uh, used to drive a semi. Went to this one farm and, and trying to get them on to the truck was a nightmare. Just the way it was set up, it was a disaster. And then they were all freaked out. And I remember I pretty well had to hand bomb every sheep off the truck. They just didn't want to go. It was scary and it was just a terrible setup. So, but once they go, then they all go. So, well, and then the other problem is you got them so excited and fearful that they, they, um, it takes 20 minutes to calm down. I think I want to talk a little bit about animal emotions. Animals do have emotions. Of course, fear is one of the big emotions, but you also have anger, but you also have the emotion of seek or to explore. There was an interesting experiment that New Mexico State did, put GPS collars on Angus cows, and some individual cows would get out and graze a whole lot of pasture, and other cows would just lay around the water hole, and they called them the... Um, the uh, laid backs and the go-getters, go-getters and laid back. You can actually look up the paper. And that's a genetic difference in the exploration drive because you have fear, you have anger, then you have exploration or seek. Then you also have the mother young separation distress. Separation distress is a different emotion than fear. Okay, you take the lambs and the cows and the calves apart, there's separation distress. 
and that's just, that's separate from fear. And then of course you have sex drive. Then you've got the mother young nurturing. You might have a cow that will run you off and maybe she doesn't bother lick her calf. And these emotional systems are by both, you know, genetics has a big effect on them. And then you have play, but fear and separation stress are separate things. And then you have this urge to explore. And some animals will just get out and walk around and get a lot more pasture. That's awesome. We have time for one more question, guys. So we have iPad, H's iPad. <laughs> Is, are you ready to go? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I don't know if you guys can hear me. I'm kind of getting a fast forward motion uh, through the iPad here. Just a big question. Um, we've been trying the last few years, we have in uh, April, May. Uh, the market seems to be a little hotter in March and April down here in Ontario. So weaning calves at 500 pounds or 600 pounds in October, November doesn't seem to make any sense. Uh, the cows are in good shape over the winter. And um, just wondering, like the Canadian Cattlemen's Magazine published an article. They didn't talk too in depth about the um, change on the cows, uh, bringing the calves, you know, nine, 10 months along on the cow. They talked a little about the cow weaning the calf. But I was just wondering, is there a concern there for keeping replacement heifers and those calves sucking back on those cows? And then the stress, I imagine, would be a lot less if you did a fence line weaning. Just maybe some thoughts on that, if you guys well, could. Well, I couldn't hear part of this, unfortunately. That one temple was, I, I'm just going to summarize. So I hope that I summarize can... it for me that right yeah um anyone ever do the late weaning just wondering if that will lead to calves still sucking cows later in life uh, there was an article in the canadian cattlemen about this well it, it's possible that it might what did they find in that article what did they say that i well, don't are they know sucking later in life because you times a cow will push them away too right yeah they touched on the touch on the cow will wean the calf or produce less milk and the calf will wean itself but I'm just concerned. I keep a lot of my own cattle for, you know, cows. Uh, the heifers. Well, I'd be worried that his body condition is going to get pulled down too hard. Right. The animal behavior wouldn't be too bad. Like, you're not looking at, you no, know, you're replacing I don't want heifers. Sucking. I don't want the calf when it grows up sucking on other animals, yeah. obviously. But I'd also be concerned, you know, is they pulling the body condition of the cow down too much, too. But I mean, have you seen that behavior or do you know if that's a, a normal behavior of those replacements to do that later down well, the road? It, it, some of these things also can, there's genetic factors too in, in some of these behaviors. The the other thing that I'd be concerned about, I mean, there's, there's some positive things about that. I mean, that calf gets that little bit of buttermilk all winter, right? That's really going to help them with their gains as long as it doesn't draw down the mum too much, yeah. right? If she's in good body condition and she's doing well. Um, I've, I've heard years ago that there's no reason why you would wean a calf, but you can have a few different reasons why you would wean a cow, right? She's getting, you yeah. know, a, a thinner. We, we've got to get that calf off so, so she can uh, uh, gain some weight so she can rebreed. Um, the other concern with that late weaning that I've seen is actually teen pregnancies, right? You leave those calves out there too long. You know, if they're just still on the calf and you didn't castrate any of the bulls, uh, which a lot of these guys do that are doing this not weaning their calves. Um, and then I get them in the, you know, those teenage pregnancies show up in the middle of my pasture with a heifer that can't, you know, is too young to be having a baby and I got to deal with it out in the pasture. So that's something that I've seen if, you know, some of these people that are leaving them on too long because they haven't processed them yet, right? They just leave them out there. So something else one, to look at. 
one issue they've had in some of the countries that are selling a lot of grass-fed beef is weaning a calf really, really young so the cow doesn't get pulled down. In other words, what they're doing is overloading the system. And because they want, they got a big export market and they want to get, uh, you know, they're just pushing it too hard. And so they're weaning the calf very young. And there's some welfare issues, you know, with that. I think there's a balance to be had there for sure. There's a balance. You see, the thing that people have a hard time, whether on genetic selection and things like this, is where is the right balance? Okay, years ago, there was a rooster that was horrible and he slashed up the hands. And then they bred a gentleman. And then they bred all the guy out of the rooster. They'd gone too far. And that's chicken genetics company did that. This happened slowly and they didn't realize it. It's sort of like lameness problems can creep up on you. Dairies have had problems with this where uh, you can get up to 25% lameness and they don't see it until they measure it. There's been three different studies. If you ask a dairy producer how many, what percentage of the cows are lame, they'll underestimate by half. And then when it's actually measured, they're shocked. And of course, I'm a big proponent of things like measuring lameness, body condition, you know, monitoring all of those things. Somebody just said they think it's happening in Ireland with huge export markets. They're pushing the system past the carrying capacity of the system. And then you can really get into a mess. You've got a big market, a big demand, and not enough supply. And when that happens, I don't care what the product is, then there's a tendency to cut corners. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good point to end the recording on. Temple, do you have any last words or anything? Any encouragements for people? Well, I think this has been really great. And these kinds of forums are just wonderful places where people share ideas. I'm willing to hang out you know, a while longer. Sounds like a lot of people are really starting to do some innovative things and just keep doing it. We've got to you know, make some truly sustainable systems. That's and a lot of there's a lot of vegetarian products being sold now for meat. And if you look at the ingredients list, they got a lot of ingredients. Each one of those ingredients has a supply chain, involves diesel trucks and stuff like that. They may not be as sustainable as, as they look. For sure. Well, I'd like to kind of close things out here, Temple. Thank you very much. It's been an honor having you here and really appreciate you being here. And I'd like to thank you again. Honestly, uh, the, the, the help you gave me with my son 17 years ago was worth its weight in gold. Um, well, thank I, you. Uh, if anybody goes to watch the Temple Grandin movie, it, it's an amazing movie. Make sure you got a box of Kleenex beside your eye. I needed it because it was so emotional for me because uh, I lived through that. Identified with the mom, w- with your mom, Temple, so much because yeah. my son has gone through that. And I, you know, it was very hard for me to watch. So I thank you very much for being here tonight, for all the work you've done in our industry. And it's just amazing to have you in, in, on our team. So it was thank really, you very really much. good here. And I want to, sounds like you're doing a lot of innovative things, which I think is really great. And that we've got to help other people that do innovative things and, and be successful. I do want to quickly thank Battle River Research Group for helping with tonight. Greener Pastures Ranching, of course. Every week we have Steve on with us and, of course, Gateway Research Organization. And thank you, Temple, so much. You are amazing. 